the idea is that if you send police cars to areas where you expect crime, there will be less crime. There is very little evidence that that is effective or at least effective in a desirable way. Algorithmic techniques for predicting crime, sometimes also referred to as predictive policing, has come under continuous scrutiny over these last few years. At the start of November 2021, LAPD was forced to discontinue its use of the software PredPol due to massive protests and police outcry. Predictive policing poses new issues for protection of human rights in law enforcement. From the University of Cambridge Center of Governance Human Rights, I am Mariam Tanveer and this is Declarations. And running today's discussion is Nana. Nana is a PhD candidate in the politics department who researches political theory and violence. She is joined by two experts in the field of predictive policing. My first guest is Johannes Healer, an advisor on anti-terrorism issues at the OSC Offices for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. He is a human rights professional from Germany who serves as, a, as an advisor on the anti-terrorism issues in the human rights department. He has worked at the department in different capacities since August 2013, including the impl- implementation of projects to strengthen the protection of human rights defenders. From 2003 to 2013, he worked at the Amnesty International London, where he was primarily engaged in the human rights law and policy area and conducted advocacy work on broad range of issues with international and regional human rights mechanisms and institutions, including the United Nations and the Council of Europe. Our second guest is Miri Zilka. She's a research associate in the machine learning group at the University of Cambridge, where she works on trustworthy machine learning. Her research centers around deployment of algorithmic tools in criminal justice. Before coming to Cambridge, she was a research fellow in machine learning at the University of Sussex, focusing on fairness, equity, and access. Mary obtained a PhD from the University of Warwick in 2018. She holds an MSc in physics and a dual BSc in physics and biology from Tel Aviv University. Mary was also awarded the Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship to develop a human-centric framework for evaluating and mitigating risk in Causal Models, set to start in May 2022. She is a college research associate at King's College, Cambridge, and an associate fellow at Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence. Miri is currently on a part-time secondment to the Allen Turing Institute. Predictive policing leverages the techniques of statistics and machine learning for the purpose of predicting crime. The human rights perspective provides several interesting questions for the use of predictive policing. And as the technology functions today, it seems to perpetuate already existing biases in the police work. But could this be overcome? Using technology for the purpose of police work necessitates questions of who is responsible for the protection of human rights and how to decide on whose human rights to uphold in case of conflict. What is clear is that there needs to be clear channels of oversight if human rights are to be protected in a digitized law enforcement. Over to you, Nana. Yes, um, thank you so much for coming, Miri and Johannes. So, just to start us off, um, I wondered if you, Miri, would explain what predictive policing is and how it functions. So generally, when people talk about predictive policing, they're referring to what is called hotspot mapping, predictive models which are tools that predict um, the time and the place where future crime might occur. And we can take that definition and generalize it a little bit further and say that predictive policing 
is, are all models that aim to predict crime that hasn't occurred yet. Great. Yeah, that's uh, a very good uh, startup. I'm, I assume it's fair to say that it is a kind of simulation in the sense that it kind of simulates a future scenario or model or predictive policing is doing that. So I'm not sure what you mean when you say simulation, but um, basically all it can do is to try and find patterns that happened in the past and assume that those same patterns are going to be repeated in the future. Yes. And um, following up on that, Johannes, um, as a preliminary reflection, do you see any um, obvious human rights issues with the idea of predictive policing and how it might come to function? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I see actually plenty of human rights issues obviously connected to the uh, to the systems as such. But I think it is important to distinguish also between the different types of systems uh, that we have, because when we speak about predictive policing, it's not one system that we have, but there are different types, which are using different types of information for different purposes and so on. Broadly, we can categorize it into two groups. Uh, one is uh, the mapping, uh, the geographical mapping, but then the other one is also the crime prediction, which relates to the to an individual, to a person, which is person-based, individual-oriented uh, risk assessments. And there we have quite a few different incarnations as well. But I think... Um, um, what we often hear, or sometimes, you know, it's uh, been claimed that one is less problematic than the other. Um, the geographical one is less problematic than the other one, uh, which might be true or not, depending on the systems. Um, obviously, I mean, the um, human rights implications differ. But I think what is important to note is really that all of these systems impact human rights because they involve quite um, a lot of um, information that is collected and analyzed and have quite uh, potentially uh, quite vast uh, consequences. That's a great preliminary uh, setting of the scene of human rights. And that is, of course, also the topic of declarations is this human rights perspective on, on new technologies for this season. Um, I think... People in general, or our listener in, listeners in particular, will have heard about predictive policing in some form, but they might not be aware of where it is being employed at the moment. Um, I think most people would assume that it is common in large U.S. cities such as New York and L.A., but it is also been, or it is also being used, or has been used in the U.K. and, and in India. Uh, so I was wondering um, if any of you would like to elaborate on where, uh, in which contexts predictive policing is being employed currently. So I think um, the most well-known tool is called PredPol, and it is widely deployed within the US. Um, and it was also trialed in the UK by several police force, but I'm not aware of any of them using that particular software at the moment. Um, but there is a couple of um, tools that are used in the UK that have similar principles. So I picked up a couple. So a tool named Poliscope um, is being deployed by the Nottingham Police. And uh, there's a tool that's being used by the Met Police 
which is made by a company called Spacetime AI. And they're similar tools to Predpol in the sense that they are hotspot mapping tools. Now, what we don't know for the most part is exactly how they work. Um, we don't know what type of information they take in. We don't know exactly the algorithms they use to make predictions. And perhaps most importantly, we don't know how they're being used by the police. That is uh, very interesting. And it leads me on to this question um, I've been thinking about while researching this episode on, on the idea of patterns uh, in predictive policing. So from what I know about machine learning, there necessarily needs to be, needs to be a training data set. And as you mentioned, the data set for training a police uh, or predictive policing algorithm would be past historical data on criminal activity, which has um, some issues with it in the sense that it is biased towards certain population groups and follows some discriminatory patterns, particularly racial discrimination and also to some extent gendered discrimination. I think it might be helpful for me to break that up a little bit. So how well our information reflects actual criminal activity will depend on many factors. One of them is the type of crime, but also who is the offender and potentially who's the victim. So one important distinction we can make is by how criminal activity becomes known to law enforcement. So we can think of two main ways. So one of them is through victim or witness reporting. So people call the police, they say there has been a crime, and then the police respond. Um, but there are certain types of crimes, specifically things like driving under an influence or drug possession, that requires more um, direct police um, active searching, if you like. So either stop and search or traffic stops to find those crimes. And um, you can imagine that potentially there can be more bias in those activities where the police needs to proactively. Um, search to find whether a crime has occurred compared to um, crimes where it's been reported to the police by the victim, although it has been shown that that is biased as well. I mean, it is evident that there are real risks of data sets um, that are uh, used in the analysis are tainted by discriminatory policing from the outside. Um, there is bias already in the information that, uh, that gets collected and that is input in the system. We know that uh, discriminatory uh, policing is not, um, does not only happen in theory, but it is a reality, sadly a reality um, across the globe. We don't only know that since uh, the Black Lives Matters uh, uh, um, protests, I mean, we have uh, uh, plenty of issues. Um, the UK was uh, mentioned uh, earlier, um, uh, regarding over-policing in neighborhoods where uh, Black and Asian minorities are overrepresented, um, We have, in many, many countries, we have over-policing in neighborhoods where uh, migrants um, uh, from, from different parts of the world are living. Um, we have Roma communities which are over-policed. So this is a problem that, that is there. And this informs 
the tools uh, that are used because um, the crime rates and um, it's not the crime rates as you pointed out that are that is that are recorded but it's um, the policing reactions to the crime rates which means we have the bias already at the at the first level and that bias obviously uh, reproduces uh, itself in the learning in the in the um, in the machine learning in the analysis and so on and when it comes to the decision and then the outcome of this the output of this system is like here we have a crime hotspot um, and there's a need to police then this over policing gets even more um, more exacerbated uh, so it's been um, it's been described as um, a feedback loop or a cycle of uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, actually. So the whole system um, is built basically to to perpetuate and 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 reinforce discrimination. Can I actually pose a follow-up question to? Um, so, how do you feel about a model that the only data that's feed into it is victim reporting? How would I feel about it? Um, I mean, victim reporting is, does not accurately uh, reflect crime rates because we always have under-reporting and over-reporting there as well. Under-reporting, I mean, in, in domestic violence, violence against women cases, there's a huge problem of under-reporting. Um, so, you know, there, I think I would say the problem is inherent. Um, of course, you know, I mean, there might be ways of mitigating the problem. I don't know. Um, uh, maybe they there are, uh, but I would say the the challenge is inherently built in uh, into the system, which makes it uh, so dangerous. If I might pose that question back to you, Miri, uh, do you think that a victim reporting kind of machine learning predictive policing would be able to overcome some of these biases? I think it really depends also on how it's being used. So I think. Um, if there are particular patterns, potentially specifically in time, where there tends to be more distress in certain times and certain areas, then the model is used to make sure um, that there is enough resource to answer that distress. I think that is relatively safe use of the application. In general, um there seems to be a sense of uh, which one is the lesser evil in the sense that police is already biased in its decision-making. There are a lot of dubious heuristics during the rounds in, in regular police work. And then the question is, can machine learning help us overcome that? Or is it just perpetuating the same tendencies? And of the two, I haven't been able to decide which one I will place my trust in. but. It does seem to be a kind of accentuation happening in predictive policing, particularly when, when it comes to the self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, the kind of reproduction of um, patterns when, when a police officer responds to a call to a certain area, that becomes a new data point, and then it kind of reproduces this over-policing of the same zone. Do you think that machine learning kind of harbors the potential of actually becoming this less biased, more neutral tool for doing police work? So I think, I mean, machine learning is essentially using the power of data and statistics. 
And it's definitely been shown that in deployment, it can and it does um, reinforce this existing bias. So we know that the use does have dangers of forcing and reinforcing already uh, behaviors and uh, outcomes that we, we don't think are good. But I don't think it's something inherent to the use of the tool as much as the way it's used. And specifically, the fact that it's often not very goal-oriented. Because like every tool, if, you, if you're starting to use something new, if you bought yourself a new fitness equipment, you would want and you use it, you would want to see outcomes. And with policing, you would imagine these outcomes should be potentially a reduction in crime or having the same rate of crime, but maybe with less people being arrested, less people sent to prison. So you need to see if something you're doing is effective, you would see outcomes. And in many cases, things are being um, deployed without a clear idea of what the outcome should be and without any validation of whether that outcome is actually achieved. And I think that's very difficult because you can imagine that um, the public might accept the use of certain tools if they are shown that they reap significant benefits. I'm not a technologist, uh, so um, who, who am I to challenge uh, uh, this? Um, I'm, I'm coming really from the human rights perspective and from the legal uh, perspective. Uh, so my, my view is a little bit different. Or my view is not, a, I take your point, but um, my perspective is a little bit different. And I think um, what I meant was in, with inherently um, that we have bias inherently um, uh, injected into these systems is... Um, I think, um, I mean, it is due to the fact that that uh, um, bias is inherently human as well. I mean, we have human bias. Um, and um, if um, systems are built and we select data that machines should use and, and, and that will be used for training machines and so on, um, then uh, this influences um, uh, the machine. As as well. So um, there is uh, the issue of bias being reproduced. Um, now, I think what we hear uh, very often is like technology is presented to us as objective and as, um, as um, um, unbiased and, and, and objective, but that is, is not, uh, um, is, is, is not uh, true um, uh, because it is also socially constructed. Um, um, now, regarding the effectiveness, I do think, you know, I mean, we, we use lots of, of different tools and so on. And indeed, um, if a system produces a desired outcome and, and uh, a benefit, then, of course, you know, I mean, the, this is a, it's a fair point then to use it. Um, the question, of course, is, um, and I'm not in a position to, to say this because I have not done this analysis. Um, but what I have come across quite quite a lot is that you know there is very little independently or independent evidence uh, studies which uh, support um, uh, the effectiveness um, of uh, many tools. But um, that um, indeed um, 
many of these uh, tools have been criticized for discriminatory impact by communities affected. They have uh, led to um, um, alienation of communities feeling, feeling further marginalized and so on. And this in itself also undermines the efficiency of the system because policing ultimately is about um, serving the people and, and it needs legitimacy, credibility, and it needs cooperation and trust of the people. Otherwise, it will not work. So uh, the efficiency argument, I think, goes in both ways and uh, by human rights uh, or lack of respect of, of human rights or um, um, discriminatory, be it direct or indirect discriminatory impact, it undermines um, uh, it can uh, potentially undermine the efficiency um, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to ask another question in terms of the focus of predictive policing software, because as far as, far as I understand, there seems to be a focus on exactly as you said, Miri, stop and search kind of also property crime uh, types of criminal activity, because also those are uh, perhaps more pattern-based in general, like they follow a certain kind of human behavior, psychological pattern, as opposed to more spontaneous criminal activity, such as violence. Um, what I've been puzzled by uh, is that it doesn't seem, or I, at least I haven't come across any kind of predictive policing for white collar crime, which is very digitized and would be, in my opinion, a very good candidate for predictive policing software in the sense that this is a wholly digitized area, usually of, of economic criminal activity. And this kind of geographical location-based policing does seem to target a very specific kind of criminal activity which might be more predominant in a certain population of uh, socioeconomic uh, deprivation or yeah status. No, so I think um, just taking a little step back. Um, so the deployment of the mapping-based uh, tools, um, the idea behind them is that the presence of police would deter criminal activity. So the idea is that if you send police cars to areas where you expect crime, there will be less crime. There is very little evidence that that is effective or at least effective in the in the in a desirable way. And so that gives us brings us back to having to rethink what what's the goal um, in terms of other types of crimes. You're absolutely right. I think there are many better ways to use statistical analysis within um, law enforcement than they are now. Um, I don't know how much they're not being used or they're not as publicized, maybe because they do their job better. I definitely know that there are projects connecting um, things like bank statements and bank activity with potential crime. So I know there are things happening in that space um, but they're not, perhaps they're not affecting as many people's lives as these tools that we're talking about and are therefore less um, publicly known. Well, there are tools actually, and it's 
I mean, I don't know exactly what tools are employed and how do they work? Uh, because as I said, I mean, this is not, I'm, I'm not a computer guy. So this is, um, uh, but uh, we in the banking system, we have um, um, algorithms uh, trying to detect money laundering and financing uh, for terrorism, for, for example. And um, it is true, it is usually not affecting people, but there are cases. And we do, um, we, I specifically work on counterterrorism issues, and, and we do hear from, from civil society um, contacts, for example, who have been, um, who are, you know, who are flagged um, as posing uh, because of their, because of their belonging to a minority group and their political activity and so on. Um, they are considered to be a risk factor. And there are indeed cases where this also led to uh, deep banking, so closure of bank accounts and so on, without really proper uh, possibility to challenge it and so on. But this is a little bit, I mean, this is, a, is systems which are um, more in the banking area and um, financial intelligence units and so on. Over to perhaps a, another kind of question, uh, more relating to the mapping-based predictive policing, which uh, I'm sensing is a kind of topic here. Um, there seems, uh, at least to me, to be a temporal shift uh, in, in the priorities of the police in this kind of map-based predictive policing, in the sense that the police is becoming more proactive seeking out or looking for crime in certain areas prior to having any kind of report or incident ha having actually happened. This might be a continuation, like the police might still have been patrolling these kinds of areas either way with or without the algorithmic recommendation, but the it seems to be becoming more systematic. And I'm just wondering, it seems like the police... Uh, at least in the UK prior, uh, prior they have been much more of like a neutral actor who's re responding to crime as opposed to proactively like counteracting crime, which seems to be, to me, a little, more, little bit more similar to the kind of counter-terrorism way of doing police work that you, that you do proactive work prior to any kind of criminal activity having happened. Uh, and I'm just wondering whether this temporal shift is actually a shift or if it's just a continuation of how the police have always worked. And in which case, is there a possibility or like a worry that this kind of proactive policing will be provo provoking or entrapping people in uh, uh, unfortunate circumstances? So I think this is a really good point. And it's very nuanced um, because I think the police exposes themselves to criticism in either case. So if they, if a crime has happened, a serious crime has happened, um, they'll be criticizing, they'll be criticized for not stopping it. But if they proactively um, go and seek to prevent a crime, they can also be criticized for it because there, um, nothing's happened yet. Um, so I think there's no one answer. Um, and if we want to link that back to technology, it really emphasizes how important it is that we give tools a job and we understand exactly how they're supposed to help 
achieve the goals we want to achieve. So you can say there are specific crimes, very serious crimes, um, maybe crimes where there's serious bodily harm or crimes involving children that our priority is to prevent. Where on the lower end of the spectrum, our priority is to not be proactive and to not set out and try and find people that only commit petty crimes. And we need to make sure that the way we deploy technology assists us in promoting the priorities that policymakers set out and the public agrees on, rather than deploying something that effectively undermines those goals. Yeah, I would also uh, start by emphasizing really prime prime prevention, uh, preventing terrorist acts, preventing uh, people uh, uh, for becoming victims to crime is actually a human rights obligation of the state as well. I mean, there are positive obligations on the state, um, um, uh, positive human rights obligations to take action uh, when there are problems. And this requires also uh, policing and preventing crime and so on. Whether it is a, a, a shift I think there are uh, several other policing concepts like intelligence-led policing. It's all slightly different uh, policing concepts, but I think overall we do see um, more more of a shift towards prevention. And it makes sense, of course, it's a fair point to to prevent, it's better than healing. uh, it's more efficient to deploy your 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 um, resources to uh, to um, places where you can have impact um, rather than uh, rather than only reacting. So I do think there is a, a, a shift in policing concepts as well. Um, however, there is also a price uh, attached to it, and um, we have in in especially or not maybe yeah. I can say, especially in counterterrorism policing, we have a shift which goes more and more into this pre-criminal uh, space, and this obviously raises really fundamental questions. You know, I mean, crime that is not committed, how, what? Um, there can only be criminal responsibility um, for for uh, um, uh, and, uh, a crime if there's criminal intent and an actual uh, an act um, uh, uh, taken. Um, um, otherwise, we get into the policing of thoughts, which is which is already happening in many in many countries. Actually, um, we have, um, and I was referring earlier to. We spoke a lot about uh, mapping, geographical mapping, etc. Et but um, I mentioned earlier also the individual and person-based um, risk assessment, and this is a reality. And there's also a need for it in prison. Prison and probation services risk assessments are made of people um, using certain indicators and so on. But what we see um, in countering terrorism, for example, is we have um, a part of so-called measures to counter while or prevent violent extremism. We see the use of early signs of um, or to identify people who are on the path towards radicalization. So we don't even know what the profile of a terrorist is, but we're trying to identify those who may become terrorists at some point. And then um, they may be, you know, maybe not subject to restrictions, but there will be a police officer visiting them, which can have really a chilling effect on many rights. Um, The other um, 
the other aspect that we see in counterterrorism is uh, the use of uh, so-called administrative measures. Again, this has nothing to do with uh, technology, but this is a trend. Tec uh, administrative measures imposed by the police, uh, which are human rights restrictions imposed by the police on people who are considered to pose risks. Assigned residency orders, movement restrictions, travel bans, asset freezing, you name it. I mean, really, really serious human rights interferences. And this is based on, on, on vague and opaque um, risk assessments. Um, I think there's really a need for, for oversight. If I might follow up on that, in, in the situation where, as you say, there, people have a human right not to be the subject of, of a criminal offense or not to be targeted or, or not to be uh, the victim of crime. And at the same time, you have the human rights of the people who might become criminal or might become terrorists who are being, or their human rights are being infringed by this necessity to protect others' human rights. In this kind of uh, battle between individual human rights, what would be the weighing of different considerations in this kind of uh, situation? And, and do you think that um, something that is being effectively done today in counterterrorism work. I think I can just offer the perspective um, that there are always trade-offs, and thinking often um, governments and are are very scared to make explicit what those trade-offs are, and one thing that involving technology does is it forces you to make them explicit because you're turning decisions into quantitative decisions. So you have to decide. You have to decide that if someone is 20% at risk of particular crime, then you classify them as dangerous. It, 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 it becomes more of a of clear lines compared to what maybe before was more situational and context dependent, but could also depend, for example, on who's making the decision. So, but so there are potential benefits to making things more uniform, but there's also a lot of problems and risks. Um, but I think a really key point to say is that whatever those trade-offs and decisions are, they shouldn't be left to technologists. They shouldn't be left to the people designing algorithms who can potentially make them almost in an arbitrary way without having the knowledge or the context or the authority to really make those decisions. I fully agree. I mean, coming back to the trade-off, what we see, uh, especially in countering terrorism and crime, countering and preventing uh, major crime, uh, we see we see this trade-off. And this, actually, it's a false di dichotomy, uh, if you like, uh, that is being made between uh, security and human rights. We hear that all the time, like, you know, we cannot have human rights. This is about fighting terrorism. But this is leads us into the wrong direction, I think. Um, it is true that there are trade-offs and there are sometimes rights of different people which conflict with each other. But then we have to look at the individual case and we have to ask which rights are affected. There are many rights which do not where the balancing is not uh, allowed, actually, for example. I mean, there's no, uh, I don't know, 
Torture is prohibited absolutely un, uh, under all circumstances. Uh, presumption of innocence is a general principle of, of law, which is also uh, actually considered absolute. But then we have certain rights, which where, of course, interferences can be made and the, in, and the balancing uh, will have to be uh, done. Um, right to liberty, of course, you know, I mean, if someone uh, represents a security risk, um, there may be a case um, um, to limit uh, liberty. At the same time, the question is, as you as you pointed out, and I would fully echo that, the question is who decides and 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 what safeguards are there. Um, and uh, unfortunately, what we see is that safeguards are actually lowered and uh, who decides where for that we actually have from a big big chunk of this this uh, these considerations we have criminal law so people are um, investigated they are um, you know they are suspected of a crime then there is an investigation then there's prosecution charged and 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 conviction um, we have more and more of the competences being uh, delegated to police forces with limited safeguards and protections, which we would have in, in, in criminal law. As I said, this is a general trend that we see. And now put technology to that, and it amplifies uh, the whole problem. If I can just jump back in. Um, I think that if we want to think about how we can change things for the better, the question that should be posed when thinking about adding technology is how can we help the decision maker in their decision making process so we don't want to replace them and we want to give them something that would genuinely help them in what they're trying to achieve and that could be showing them specific type of information that could be making some calculation but it needs to be, the purpose needs to be to improve the process and then we need to check that in practice that actually happens. You know, there the issue comes in with automation bias and so on as well. Um, you know, the decision maker, um, often uh, the human in the loop or the end decision maker is often not very strong. And we have done a little bit of work, work on uh, technology uh, in, in border uh, security, uh, counter-terrorism-related counter border security, um, so border policing, basically. Um, it's a little bit different from predictive policing, but you have also risk assessments, you have screening, you have profiling, risk of discriminatory profiling, and so on. So quite big human rights risks. And then you have uh, tools being developed. and the what we hear from border guards, um, ordinary border guards, is they have no clue how this how the thing works. They are given a system and are given very little training how to use it, what how it functions. If I drive a car, I have to I don't have to be able to fix it, but I need to understand the, the basics of it um, in order to run over people. They need to be aware of the limitations of the system and of the human rights implications. Um, and if that is not in place, then they will not take decisions, but they will follow the decisions they are given by the technology. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. Um, I think what I envision is a tool that acts more like a binoculars. 
So it doesn't, it helps you see something maybe you wouldn't have seen without it, but it's not taking away the decision from the person that has to actively, still has to actively go through the process of the decision-making themselves, not just accept or reject or accommodation done by a tool. That is an excellent point. Yeah, thank you. And returning a little bit to what can be done, I wanted to ask you both, um, knowing that human rights are known to be, in a sense, difficult to enforce because it is the state's responsibility to uphold its obligation to the declaration, but whenever the state's interest and human individual human rights oppose each other, there is necessarily a trade-off. And this also seems to be even more the case, or perhaps with predictive policing, that it's very hard to see how human rights can be upheld. And I wondered who should be responsible for that, in your opinion? Who should be charged with the responsibility of uh, defending human rights in predictive policing technology? Obviously not the technologist, according to you, Mireille, but but who, who else is there? I think it is. Um, it cannot be left uh, uh, to technology. Um, it cannot be left uh, to the police at law, uh, alone either. It uh, there needs to be uh, um, there needs to be oversight. Um, and I think um, you know when we talk about policing, counterterrorism in particular, oversight is always one of the big headaches because you have so so much secrecy. Um, uh, for you know national security reasons, policing, and so on, L- very little uh, transparency, uh, which Mary flagged right at the beginning. We don't know many of the how the things work, but then um, in this field we also have additional secrecy coming in uh, from from companies, trade secrets. So there's so little transparency. Um, there are, um, I think. There are organizations which have done a great job in um, tackling this and through freedom of information requests and so on in the UK and the US and have been able to get information and then analyze some of the rights implications. But this needs to be this needs to be um, really, um, I mean, the watchdog role of civil society is important, but uh, it needs to be built in the system um, independent um, and external external oversight um, it's always uh, difficult in, when we when in in the policing area uh, but uh, there's no way around it um, now there with regards to this we I mean there are plenty of things that come to mind human rights impact assessment uh, algorithm auditing what is very important is that in all of this, we always ensure participation and an inclusive approach to ensure that those who are affected by technologies not only consulted but can also have a say in, in uh, to the extent possible uh, um, in in the development and regular review. So I think I can add a little bit about what I think um, roles and responsibility of technologists are. So I think they need to communicate as much as possible with policymakers, with people who understand the law better and with users and make sure they understand the context 
um, of how the tools they're building is going to be deployed. I think they also have a responsibility of trying to come up with creative solutions because often people know what they want, but they might not know what's possible. So they need to try and extend what's possible using technology. And then, of course, um, they're also in charge of making sure that the tools they build are, you can understand how they work. The user can understand all they need to understand in order to use it safely. So we need to make sure that we know how to validate the system. We need to make sure we can demonstrate if it does what we want and expect it to do, or when it doesn't, there needs to be fail-safe mechanisms. Absolutely. Thank you. I think I'll just ask one last question, actually, um, which is more of like a personal opinion question. Um, so after this discussion that we've had about all the potential pitfalls in employing machine learning for predictive policing purposes and and the inherent flaws of both policing and machine learning, I wonder, um, are you uh, worried about this becoming a more predominant way of doing police work in the future? Or do you think that it will constitute an improvement which might actually benefit both human rights and police work in general? I'm not a technologist, so many of the things of these systems I don't understand. And uh, because I don't understand them, I mean, that already scares me. If I see, may I refer again uh, back to the, uh, to the work we did on border policing, um, we see a lot of technological tools being employed there in a very experimental way. Um, high, with a tech hype, there are, of course, you know, there are good reasons um, uh, to develop systems and so on. But um, very often things are implemented. That is the impression I, I get. Things are implemented um, which are untested. You know, there are really serious concerns about the implications they have. There's no human rights impact assessment beforehand. And, and they have just really, really um, um, uh, serious human rights implications. Um, predictive policing is not, I mean, we see technology advancing everywhere. Predictive policing is being implemented in, the, in connection with fa facial, live facial recognition, in connection with um, 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 uh, video analysis, analytics, um, in connection with uh, IMC catchers that can uh, trace your uh, location where, through your phone, um, with automated number license plate uh, readers, all sorts of crazy things. We see in the border context, we see uh, lie detectors being used. Um, for um, in, in, in questioning people who, who come, who want to um, um, apply for asylum, you know, um, where do you come from? Lie detectors being used, um, where the evidence is not very clear whether how accurate they are. Systems which try to use, record or detect micro expressions of emotions in order to, um, to detect whether, you know, the person is telling the truth or might be up to something not good. A lot of tools we are seeing 
which are really high-risk technologies and which are just implemented and used and tried without, without proper thinking through first what the implications will be. And not only that, they are also um, uh, through um, official development assistance often uh, exported to other countries where they are put uh, used in, in very... In, 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 a, in, in a framework with very, very weak institutional structures, oversight, um, human rights, awareness, or, um, or um, appetite to really uh, respect and protect human rights. And this is the reality we're seeing, and this does make me uh, quite worried. I want to reiterate that by saying um, add in tech doesn't necessarily mean things get better and sometimes they get worse and that's really important to keep in mind in this context um so i think we should work much harder in terms of design in terms of validation in terms of regulation to make sure that the tech that is being implemented is making things better um but on an optimistic note i think that's possible um, it just requires a lot more work and a lot more collaboration and researchers working closely with uh, police officers and all related disciplines and absolutely everything needs from day one to consider aspects of human rights. It can't be just a checklist that we do at the end, two years after this is already being deployed in the field and go, oops that didn't work. So I think my perspective in general is that I think statistics and data and technology can improve outcomes, but you really have to carefully make sure that that's what happening, what's happening because they can also make them worse. Great. Thank you so much. Um, this has been a great conversation. I think I would like to leave it there if that's, unless there is something you would like to add I think we could continue this the conversation really for a long time. So there's so many things to say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you so much. I must thank my guests for sharing such incredibly important and significant insights into predictive policing. And it's not only artificial intelligence that is biased, but the administration behind it is biased. The human beings who create it is biased. The social norms that affect it is biased. So there is bias everywhere. And very interesting, they talk about trade-offs, that there are always trade-offs. But it raises a question. If the trade-off means that it is penalizing some groups to ensure efficiency, is the efficiency worth it? And these trade-offs are also left to be decided by technology which cannot simply grasp the context of human and social conditions. So can many rights caused by these trade-offs balance a violation or a wrong? Lots of things to think about and maybe podcasts such as these which are instrumental in creating awareness, raising questions that more voices and more agencies need to be involved in decisions regarding predictive policing is a step towards moving the needle towards a more fairer and equitable society. Thank you.